We rarely know what lies beneath the sexy, filtered version of life that we see online. So we're lifting the lid and having the conversations about money that no one else is having. So settle in, grab yourself a coffee and come join the conversation. It's easy to be naive to the challenges that don't affect you. And the reality of life as an immigrant in the UK sure is a challenge that neither of us knew all that much about until this week. From leaving her home in India to travel abroad for the first time to attend university in London, to becoming an emerging thought leader and carving out an impressive career in tech, Rituja Rao has has huge ambitions. And if you've not heard her name yet, we're sure you will in the very near future. Alongside her career in tech, Rituja is a strong advocate of skills diversity and she's vocal about the power of social mobility. We talked to Rituja about how she's carved out a life and a career without barriers. And we have no doubt that once you've listened to her incredibly inspiring story, you too will feel that anything you want to achieve is within reach. Rituja, thank you so much for being here. We are so thrilled to have you on the podcast and so excited to unpack what looks like an incredible journey that you've been on. And, you know, to give some context to our listeners, we really want to start at the beginning. So can you tell us a bit about your experience growing up in India um, and what you thought your future might have looked like when you were younger? Wow. So like taking it right to the front, right to the start of it all. (laughs) Um, Honestly, like you're really making me think with this question. Um, I would say I've always been this person who gets bored very quickly. Pretty much like all my childhood, my adulthood, everything I am is pretty much me staying ahead of my boredom before it catches up with me. Um, So I think growing up, I was somebody who was extremely competitive, still am. (laughs) <laughs> wanted to do all sorts of things I think and it all probably comes from my parents who are equally just as competitive and they wanted me to like learn how to dance so I learned like Indian classical forms of dancing they even made me have a go at singing even though I can't sing uh, you know for my life and uh, it was swimming and sports and it was pretty much try everything because I think you should be like a well-rounded person and that's really like instilled in me that I think life is all about like balance and being good at not just good at multiple things, but enjoying multiple things. Um, And that's kind of kept me less bored, you know, so kind of connects quite well to that. Um, There were also lots of elements in my childhood where um, I come from like a working class background in India. Uh, Parents always working my mom was like you know one of the first people in her like village to like actually go and like do a full-time job in a completely different city so that was like a big moment I think for individually for my parents were like first to do things in their lives and it always showed us people and not just parents but people who were very serious about their career and I loved the way my dad would support my mom's career and you know that kind of showed me what a strong woman looks like but at the same time, it wasn't like the easiest thing, right? Because you have these like super career focused people. There's issues with money. I think sometimes with um, 
intergenerationally speaking, when you're the first to do things, it's very hard. Like learning about wealth and money can be such a difficult thing. Um, my parents weren't the best at it, but you know they instilled some really good values in me. So I've, I've kind of I'm a product of um, high expectations, like from you. Um, you know, coming from like I'm the oldest in my family. My dad was the oldest in my family, so being an older daughter in a South Asian family comes with a lot of baggage. <laughs> so I've kind of had to like go through life with all of that and I guess if you one of, one of your questions was what did I think about the future right I think it's so funny I, I'm always so like <laughs> embarrassed to say it but I used to say this thing when I think I was like 13 or 14 and I would say I want to be the richest man in the world it's it's just what I wanted and I don't think I knew how in my head I I always wanted to be a journalist which is what I did right so I wanted to be a journalist and I was like I'm gonna have like a media tech organization I'm gonna be like Rupert Murdoch which is such a horrible thing to say I realize it now uh, but it was more like, you know, I want to be like him, like I want to have everything he has, but I want to be better. Like I'm going to be a conscious, uh, you know, um, a good citizen of the world who's going to be like all about sustainability and like giving back to the society. So that was pretty much me. And I think you can see those like, I, I mean, now that I think about it, I've always thought I've, I've always seen potential in me. And I'm so glad that my, I had parents who nurtured that, who made me feel confident for having these let's be honest, like grand delusions, right? Um, and and that, that's pretty much what childhood was. It was a lot of self-introspection, like always knowing what you're doing. There was a lot of responsibility on me, looking after my sister since I was young. I think growing up, therapy has come in very handy. You know, hallelujah to therapy. Thank um, God for therapy. Absolutely. And I've kind of like looked at my childhood and I've seen like, you know, the things that shaped me, the things that weren't so good, the good, the bad, the ugly, and been able to kind of see all of that as a part of me and everything that I am now and all these things that I think about as an adult, as what I want in my future are so shaped by these experiences. So, well, I guess we're going to get into that a little bit more now, but uh, great question. Can I just say? Yeah. I mean, I absolutely love so many things about what you said there but particularly that Rupert Murdoch point because I 100% get what you're saying I think it's incredible that from such a young age you had such high aims and ambitions and I absolutely love that your parents were like yes you do it um but one thing you have talked about is the fact that you never thought when you were younger that studying abroad was an option so what was it that changed this for you? And how did you end up moving to the UK to study journalism? I think my life is just like full of anecdotes. You know, this is going to be like a spicy story again. Um, absolutely. I think growing up, that was never a thought that crossed my mind. I think it was very, it was the same sort of tangent of, you know, like my parents um, come from like super, super working class from like They've always lived in villages and things like that. And they were the first to like go to a city. It was pretty much the same sort of tangent with me when I never thought about it. Um, I've always been like somebody who got really good grades in school, like, you know, did well in like every subject that she studied sort of a thing. Um, when I was 15, um, in, in India, especially, there's a lot of focus on like medical or engineering careers. So everybody just knew that that's what I was going to do. And so did I. I wanted to be like a NASA astronaut. And I'm just confusing, aren't I? I wanted to do everything. Uh, and then I said to my parents, I realized like this love for communication and, and my purpose is and has always been giving people a voice. And I think 
I discovered that when I was 15. And then I was like, okay, now I want to be a journalist. That's how I'm going to do this. And they were supportive of it. Um, then I kind of started looking at universities in India. Um, in my bedroom, I had like a big, um, let's call it a poster that I designed and like cut out and everything. And it was um, this amazing college in India, which is like number one in the country. And it's very hard to get into, like to get in, I think they kind of, um, they only take applications from people who've received like 99% out of 100. So that's like the percentile grade, like crazy, right? And then, so that was always my dream. And I did everything for that. And what happened was I said to my dad at some point, what if I just gave like SATs? And he was like, that's not for us. And I guess what he really meant for that wasn't like people like us. And what's the point in wasting time? It's never going to happen. And that was like ages ago. So I never thought about it. And then what happened was this friend of mine in like A-levels said to me, I'm equivalent of A-levels, by the way, I had no idea what A-levels were. <laughs> she was going to Switzerland for her bachelor's. And she asked me for a lift to like go to this center where you kind of like have a counselor who tells you about universities and helps you make an application. Um, and it's all free. So that was really good. And then she sort of said to me, why don't you just come in and have a conversation? Like you don't have to do anything. She was like, why don't you just wait for me so I can have a lift back and we can go get like coffee after, right? So I went in and I was just like joking and just had a conversation with the counselor. And she was like, oh, you have such great grades. You'll obviously get in. And um, I think the, the entire process is so complicated. So she kind of explained it all to me. And I was like, mm, I don't know. And she sort of, I think she understood the kind of competitive person that I was. And she said, well, you don't have to do anything. Just like see, like see if you're like, you know, good enough to get in. And then I was like, hmm, I could do that. And then I think I lied to my mom and like asked money for something else and just put in an application at UCAS. And I applied to like really big schools for journalism, um, schools that I would like. I was like, I'm never going to get in, you know. And then my counselor was like, oh, why don't you like apply to like these schools where you'll 100% get in? And I was like, you don't get it. I'm just, I'm, this is just like a fluke, right? I'm, not, I'm never going to go. So I applied and, and my parents didn't know anything, right? They had no idea. And then I got into all five and it was cool. And um, I was like, that's fun. So I got into like LSE, um, Sheffield University of Westminster. And I, and I was like, that's good. And then I kind of like mentioned it to my mom in passing. And I said, I need like a little bit more money now, but I'm going to try and apply for scholarships. Let's see what happens. I'm never going to go. And mind you, all this while, I'm still like, I have an admission with um, a school in my city because I'm like, you know, I should have options. And I also, so funny, got in uh, to the dream school in India. And what? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, my mom gave me some money and she was like, mm, why don't you? Okay, fine. Go, go give it a go. So I applied to like multiple scholarships and yeah, got him. <laughs> uh, so I got some scholarships at the University of Nottingham and then Sheffield. And they were they were kind of like 50% of my entire tuition fee. And I still couldn't afford it, to be honest with you, even after that. So my mom was like, that is so great. Like, this is the time we talk to dad and see what we can mobilize for that 50%. Um, and I was like, no, I, I, I don't want to put you under that pressure at all. But then my cousin like told my dad, without me wanting to and there was a lot of crying and I was like no um because I thought my dad would react in a way where he'd be like why did you do this without telling me but the way he reacted was he spoke to his network of people understood what you have to do when you have to go abroad to study because nobody in my family has that experience you know um and he was super 
excited. So the next time he spoke to me, he was like, these are student loan options. I could do this. And then, you know, I can put you in touch with this person. Let's think about it, dream about it. And I was like super stunned to saying, no, I'm not going to do it. So I said no to my offers at Sheffield and Nottingham. Um, and that's it. I kind of closed my, you know, my mind to it. And I think one day I got like an email to kind of say that my dream school in India wanted to interview me for like a debate society. And I was like, so to my dad and he was like, oh, I'm really busy right now. So I can't take you. And I was like, I'm not going to miss my debate society interview, you know, for you. And I was crying. I remember and we were just having this whole thing. He was like, oh, why don't you just stay in the city? It's better. And you won't believe this, but I literally got an email from University of Westminster saying I have like a 100% scholarship. Yeah, it was like the craziest feeling. And yes, that's it. I I was like, now it's possible. Um, yeah, and then I had to like go through clearing again because I, I never accepted an offer. And then I accepted the offer in less than a month and a half. And I was here. I don't think my parents thought it through. I came here alone. I had never been abroad. That is absolutely, I mean, what a phenomenal <clears throat> story. But actually, of all of that, to to have come here with a place and a full scholarship at a university without having ever been abroad and actually you know we our universities have a lot of international students but I think it's one thing moving from Europe you know within Europe and moving from India to the UK it's such a culturally starkly different place so that must have been so daunting and I'm really sorry to quote your own words, but you wrote a post, I think it was back in January, that really was so poignant and it really stuck with me. And the post read, I never realized how much time and energy immigration would take up in my life. No one prepared me for this. As the first person to have gone abroad in my family, I didn't have a lot of support. Being the first to do everything has been painful. And... I think so many of us can, you know, resonate with that to some degree, but your story is so amazing and I can't imagine how that must have been for you. Could you just tell us a bit more about what it was like getting here and the challenges you faced and continue to face as an immigrant in the UK? I remember when I was writing that post and like, you know, the feelings I was feeling because I, I wasn't really comfortable talking about it uh, for a very long time. Um, and I still, I don't think I fully am. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting to that point of being able to talk about it in a way that I can help other people um, <clears throat> with their journeys as well. I think getting that scholarship was such a catalyst for me and it really helped, helped with the entire social mobility aspect of me being able to do this. And having that um, took my mind off things like money a little bit you know like how am I going to afford it like what is my future in terms of student debt etc going to look like so that really helped I did however as soon as I landed I was like I'm going to find a job so I've always had a job uh, since I started at university and it was I think how many I've I've had like four um, when I say full-time I mean like 20 hours that's how much you're allowed to do as an immigrant student as an international student here um, and my university was great where you could get a job at the university wow I, 
I think I was really lucky as somebody who's 18. I've always had like an office job, you know, an office job where you have like a desk and you have colleagues and you have socials and you have to actually go on time to work, you know. So it was very like not like a student job. And I never had to work in retail, etc. So as you can see, like the scholarship really changed my life all around, you know. So I always had a job. I also did like 12 internships, work experiences during my three years. Um, so yeah, it was pretty full on. Just thinking that having that scholarship, one gave me easier access to resources at the university because I feel like I had in with the university almost. Um, and then there was that element of, oh, now that I have that, like how much more can I do? You know, where can I take this? Um, my parents have never had to give me money since I was 18. And it's it's really changed my relationship with parents, my relationship with money, you know, and um, it's kind of made me like be super independent really early on and have respect for work and really instill that work ethic super early. Um, I think once I was in that position, I think there was a lot of getting adjusted to lots of different people in London, right? Um, and being in that position where you're kind of seeing sometimes that I'm a bit more serious about everything. And right now I, I do feel a bit bad. You know, I think I wish I spent more time chilling in university, like making more friends and just like hanging out. I was so like work, work, like when's my next job gonna come? And like, what am I gonna do after, you know, I graduate? It all has to like continue. Now that the trajectory is there, it's gotta stay. Um, and, and that's when I think it was, I got a really good opportunity to like talk to lots of different people and understand very early on how much of an issue immigration is gonna be for me. What I mean by that is, unfortunately, as a student, as, as an international student, when you come to the country, there's a lot of like adjustment. There's like that period of like being adjusted to what this is, everything is like, then you're focused in university, you need to pay attention to university. You don't necessarily start thinking about a job until your final year. And if you're in master's, that, that's even worse, right? Because you only have one year to do, to go through all these cycles. Um, so you get to that last year and you're like, okay, I'm now going to look for a job. But the reality is because there's so many different hoops for you to jump through, you need to start applying a whole year in advance. I had my job offer after graduation in my second year. Um, having said that, it was like, you could only go for, I think at the time there were about 250 employers and I had a whole list of them who could support somebody who needed a visa. So they had a license to support a tier two skilled worker. Um, so I had a whole list of them and all of them were like massive companies. These are like, you know, Forbes 500, FTSE 250s only. So you had to fit into their grad programs and grad programs opened their application in October, close them in about January. And then you start work in like September, the year after, right? And not a lot of international students know this and you're not exactly prepared for it, especially in the creative industries because creative industries don't higher in such a way, right? So if I were to give you like an anecdote again, because I'm so full of anecdotes, um, I, I, I do. <laughs> I uh, got my dream job at the, at the time. I was like, this is it. This is the rest of my life. I was an intern for BBC Panorama and Storyville. And that was it. You know, I was like, I've made it. I grew up like watching these shows. And I was like, that's it. If, if I've got this in my year one, easy breezy, right? It's going to be good from here do my internship it was about two and a half months I got some amazing opportunities like the feelings 
it was crazy. I think one of the biggest things for me was I was literally in a room once. I only booked the room. Like I wasn't important, but I booked the room where Judy Dench was there and she was pitching like a documentary where she's interviewed this amazing Olympian. And then um, there were like people from Netflix and Amazon and BBC and everybody was like bidding, right? It was like a whole thing. And yeah, that's when I saw how journalism was changing and how technology was changing journalism. That was one experience. And then my final day was when the head of acquisitions at BBC, I don't even know how I ended up working with her for her. She took me out for a drink at, um, I forget the name of the hotel, but it's the one right opposite BBC. It's called the Gram or something like that. I, I still don't know. But it was very bougie for me. I was like, what am I doing here? I, I was like, I thought she meant a drink and there was like a pizza express next to it. But apparently we were going to this amazing massive like hotel having a conversation she was telling me how much she loves me and how great I am and everything and then she said it's such a shame that we can't support visas and, you know I will I will hook you up with somebody at BBC India why don't you just like you know get some more experience for five years and she was like you know I'll take my word for it I will bring you back and it was such a word of confidence I'm not gonna lie but at the same time I was like hey this is not gonna work out if the BBC can't keep me, you know, at like Panorama, this is BBC One, right? So maybe journalism isn't going to take me to my other goals. Did you know then before this that they didn't support the visas or not? Um, I think that's where it gets a bit more complicated, right? In 2018, it was such that you could see that the companies had licenses, but they only had like a fixed number of people that they could hire. So they would try and hold them down for people in mid-managerial roles or senior leadership. So nobody, especially in media, because like obviously due to budgets and, you know, financial cuts and things like that in that industry, it was very like, oh, we can't, you know, go spending these things on graduates, you know? So it was, it was like a mix of emotions, but at the same time, I'm so glad it happened to me so early on. You know, year one, and I was like, hold on, if BBC isn't going to work out to me, I've got to look for other options. And that's when I discovered tech. And I think that entire experience at BBC, I was like, you know what, hold on, this industry looks like they have a lot going for them and they can help me meet like my own financial goals and my own like immigration based goals. And there is something that, that I'm really interested in. So I kind of started doing lots of like internships and work experiences that were at media tech startups, always as like a marketing or business development, something like that. But I got lots of experience and yeah, when, did I, when I applied for jobs, I applied for 163 roles. I think I did like 50, 60 odd like telephone interviews, at least 10 assessment days. And then I think I had like two, three final interviews and only got one, obviously, which is fine. Wow. Right. But yeah, I'm a bit too intense, you know. I've always been this person who like can never take no for an answer. But I recognize how much of a toll it's taken on me. And that's when I actually wrote that post, Victoria, that you quoted. I think I got this job and I was like, literally, I'm so, there's a word called filming in Hindi, which is when you're very like dramatic. But I was genuinely sat opposite um, the big, not the big, ben, yeah, the big Ben and London Eye. And that's when I wrote that post because I was like, this has been crazy. It's worked out, but somebody needs to acknowledge that this was crazy and this was painful. I was just going to ask that exact question on a much, much smaller scale. I can relate in a way. I come from a Jewish background. It's a very insular culture. It's a small kind of town that I'm from. Life is a certain way. 
and I live very differently than a woman from where I'm from and in my culture is supposed to live. And I find it really difficult to find people who can relate to me exactly as you said, if you do have a, you know, a great achievement or success, it's really painful if you can't ring up your family and, and have them understand what it is you've just done. And I'd love to know, actually, how did you find a network of people? Who were your people at that kind of time? And even now, who, who are the people that you found who you can share your achievements, difficult times with, who, who, you know, who understand what you're going through a bit more? My parents are very good at, even if they don't fully understand it, they're good at just giving support. Just, just support where it's fine that they don't know everything, but they're just going to be there for me. And uh, luckily, my parents have always trusted me a lot. And that trust is so important when a parent isn't second guessing your decision, isn't saying to you something like, oh, but like, you know, I don't fully understand it. But what if you did this? But they were very much like, you know, your situation better than anybody else. So we're going to trust you. We're going to support you unconditionally. So that's always been there. And I think once you have that, genuinely, it makes you very confident as a person. And, and then I could like very openly look for help outside. I think it is such a skill and also very difficult to say, I want help. Because the first step is you have to be like super vulnerable and say, I don't know something and look really stupid while doing it. Like I can, like, you know, I can count so many moments where I was like, God, I was so stupid. But at the same time, it's like, you will find the right people who will be attracted to that energy that I'm extremely emotional. I'm extremely vulnerable all the time. And I've kind of learned that that's a superpower. But yeah, being able to say, hey, I need your help. Explain something to me right from the beginning. And then I think I found like really good support within the university. Um, I think just having like that, you know, like that in with the corporate side of the university was so great because I could actually meet people who weren't just my teachers, right? Because you have a very different relationship as a student and, and a professor. Um, and then I can think taking it from there, they helped me like get lots of different experiences and internships, but I would just turn up. I think that is that is such an underrated thing. That's like turning up and like showing up for yourself. And then I think once I got into work, um, this program absolutely changed my life. It's called Tech Up Women, and it's run by the amazing Dr. Sue Black, um, and you know, with conjunction with lots of different universities up in the north. Um, and that program kind of gave me access to women who are like super successful in the tech industry, but also how do I put this? Do more. Like you know, they have side hustles and they have personal brands. Something that has absolutely changed my career and my life. Um, and just like seeing those people in my year once, I was twenty one at the time, in my new technology career. I was like, you know what? It's great. I am different. I'm going to use that. I am. I have come from a journalistic background, and that in itself is something I can give back to the world. So I kind of started seeing myself as somebody who had something to give you know, as opposed to something, somebody who was just here to learn because she's so new. And it really changed my relationship with people as well. And then mentorship became like pretty much everything I do. Like I will reach out to anybody. Cold calling as a journalist has come in super handy because I'll just message somebody and say, I don't know about X, you know, can we meet up for a coffee? Can we just have a call? Um, I was having this discussion with somebody yesterday when I said, they asked me how difficult pandemic was for me. And I said, Sounds super privileged, and I am. I fully recognize now, you know, that I can be privileged. And then during the pandemic, actually, because I was in Northampton, 
And for a very long time, I felt like, oh, I couldn't turn up to London and meet people and like be in these events, something I was very used to as a student. When the pandemic happened, everything moved online. So suddenly those barriers disappeared for me. And that's when I did like most of my networking, most of like the little personal brand that I have. And I have all these big ambitions now of like being a content creator, like, you know, being an entrepreneur, being an investor. And now that I'm kind of like, I've just moved to London. So I'm kind of bringing all that experience from my pandemic and making it sort of, how do I do this in person now? Uh, but yeah, I think asking, teaching myself to ask for help is where I get most of my support from. I mean, you touched on it a little bit there, but one thing that you say on your bio is, you know, building a career in tech unrestricted by barriers. And I think that today it's very, very easy. We talk so much about all of the barriers that are being faced by different groups, whether that is women, whether that is minorities, whether that's immigrants. And it's safe to say, you know, you have faced some of these different challenges, but how have you learned to develop this mindset of not just letting those barriers stand in your way and feeling like, oh my gosh, this hill is too big to climb? Again, great question. I think um, I probably want to say I attribute this back to the fact of, I think when I, I was 21 when um, I was graduating from uni and made this huge career change. Being so young and making a career change, as difficult as it was, it had lots of benefits, right? Because I learned change so early on I became comfortable with change right at the beginning of you know hopefully what's going to be a long career and from there on it's been very much if I don't know something I will learn it while I fully acknowledge all the barriers and I see them and some people have (laughs) there was this one time when I got nominated for an award it was my first industry award it's very excited it said something like digital hero of the year um, next generation or something like that something crazy like it was so powerful as like category to be nominated for and I was like attending that event with um, the people director of the company I was working at at the time <laughs> and we were just having this conversation and I was like oh I'm a bit nervous like you know I'd love to win um, I think she'd said something like of course you're gonna win you know you like you take all these check boxes on that list you're a woman you're a woman of color you know you're young it just made me feel so little now that I think about it in that moment, I was like, oh, do I really have a good chance to win? But now that I think about it, it was a bit patronizing, you know, just kind of say, you have all these like things going for you. You know, it's like somebody said to me that these barriers were something I should be proud of and like be like, oh, this is what's going to get me the easy ticket in. And to hear like conversation, like, you know, things like this said about you, it it is difficult and I don't want anybody to have to go through with that at all but I kind of did learn to like build like this really thick skin of always saying well watch me you know um it has I think if you ask me all these like barriers what effect have they had on me I would 100% say they've had an effect on like my personal relationships I think I have become this like this is like over 18 podcast right but I've kind of started saying like there's no place in my life for bullshit at all sure that means I don't let a lot of friends get very close to me because as soon as somebody says something that's a bit out of line and like for a second even like intrudes upon this life that I'm trying to build or like me and my mental health I just say no I've cut out a lot of people from my life you know like I walk away from all these amazing things that I do 
but not a lot of friends. And like social media doesn't help because I see those people from those circles and those events and the, you know, the, the organization that I was part of and they're all still really good friends. And I just feel like I wish, right? Like I wish I could also have that, but th that's it. That's a reality, right? You can't, I can't personally stay around people who doubt me, who have anything to say about anything that I'm doing. It's, it's hard enough. I don't want to have people around me that make it harder for me. Um, another anecdote, because I'm just so full of them, was um, my first manager, who's an amazing person, God bless him. Uh, I realize now that he just he just didn't have the knowledge that it took, right? But when I was just starting out on my personal branding journey, I was like posting on LinkedIn a lot, like creating posts and like talking about awards, nominating myself for awards, which I'm very proud of. He once said to me that I was becoming like a marketing machine and people don't like that. You know, people don't like people who are like marketing machines. And I cried that day, I remember, because I just like really cared about this person's validation at the time and I cried a lot. He always gave me a very hard time. And you know, some people take a lot of pride in being like, oh, I gave you this much of a hard time so you could be better. I think I remember how sad I was that day and like obviously forgot all about it, didn't stop. Thank God for that. Um, and then left the company, he moved on, I moved on. I think my, in my next job, he once reached out to me and he he's working he was working for Amazon at the time he reached out to me and he said hey there's a new role I would love to work with you again because we always remain good friends regardless of what he's maybe you know insinuated sometimes I always knew he was coming from a place where he just didn't know any better at the time but then he said he he you know would you be interested and I was like yeah of course I say yes to a lot of things in life <laughs> and then he said um I said oh I'll send my CV over he said oh don't don't worry I don't need the CV uh, but could you just send me a list of all the awards that you won and all the places you spoke at this has come a full circle he's now recognizing how these things make me better and give me an edge amazing and I mean it's just testament I think to you and for anyone listening like just like trust that you're you're on the right track when you knew you were posting those things like you knew why you were doing it and you didn't let that doubt stop you and that is like a message I think a lot of us need to to hear is not let the doubters get in the way one of the things with these barriers right is they come out of massive financial cost don't think a lot of people talk about it but it's you can literally sit down and you can make these calculations sometimes so for example with me like immigration has a massive cost I literally have to have like a an account liquid, absolutely like quickly accessible because it just needs to be there. So can you tell us a bit more? Like what does what are the practical? What do you need that that we would have no clue about? No, for sure. Um, I think so. When even if you're trying to come to the country as a student, then you obviously have to pay for the student visa. Um, and then there's an element of international health surcharge. So this is the cost that you pay as an immigrant so you can access the NHS services. And I think I understand that, right? It, it is public health, but for citizens. So you have that cost to pay and that cost is, um, it depends on like if you're a student or like, you know, somebody who's coming here to work or if you have dependents, but it's some, somewhere around like 400 to 600 pound per year. Wow. So if you're coming for a three-year university, it would be £1,200. And now there's also a new visa called graduate visa, which I have my own qualms against, to be honest with you, because it's advertises, or you come to the UK and you get two extra years after you study to be here and find a job, which I didn't have. So it's making life easier for people, but it's 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 advertised very wrongly because what it says is, is you get it, but that's not true. You only get 
the visa for your studies and then you have to apply for a new visa and you have to bear these costs yourself. The cost of working for an employer, um, it depends on, you know, like if your employer is going to bear that cost. So if you, a lot of people have said this to me previously where you're like, oh, you have to pay for it yourself, but we'll hire you. And I've just said, no, it's, it's not a cost for me. You are getting a highly skilled worker who happens to be an immigrant, right? Um, but the cost towards an employer can be quite high. There's a visa cost, there's the international health surcharge. Then they also have to pay like a surcharge for hiring somebody who is not British to the government. But it is something that the, the employer needs to pay. But I've had situations where employers have asked me to pay for lawyer services because they did not have in-house support to manage my application. Tens of thousands were speaking here. And I said, no, I said, no, thank you. I don't want it that bad, genuinely. Um, and I've also, it's such a shame. I think so many times that I interview with people, they like me and then it comes to this point of like, oh, I need a visa. And then they go away and they think about it. And they say, they say, oh, we'll consider it for you. You'll be our first. And then I find out that I wasn't the first. But then I have had to show people what the process is like, employers to so like educate them. And um, I always thought, oh, great, it's for me, right? Like, but the reality is it was free services. I had to take somebody through all of it. Then they said, oh, we can pay for this and we won't pay for that. So I've had to pay for certain things because I knew it would make my life easier. So for example, they'd be like, oh, we'll do your visa, but I'll say I need a priority service because you know the circumstances and you have to manage all these timelines of when your visa starts and when your visa ends and the benefits you get from doing things at certain times, they've had they've asked me to pay for priority services, including the VAT, including the lawyer charges to process that priority application. And, and I finally worked for an employer where I think it was such a great experience working at Deliveroo where, you know, there wasn't, nobody even asked me. I think I had to ask them, hey, FII, I'm like, you know, I need a visa. And they were like, oh, that's cool. Somebody from like our, uh, you know, in-house legal immigration support would be in touch. It was like the most happy I felt. It's like the most, like, you know, there was no burden. I'm just another employee. They don't care about the charges to them because they know, you know, they're getting talent. Um, and then after all of this, once you get to that point where you might want to stay in this country as a, you get something called indefinite leave to remain. Um, this time, no employer is going to bear that cost for you because it's yours. It's yours to like stay in the country indefinitely. Uh, the cost for that is, I think I've heard, I, I'm saving about three grand for that at the moment. And t- 12 months down the line after that, I qualify next year and then 12 months down the line, you have to then apply to be a citizen if you want it. That's another three grand as well. Plus all the time and energy it's taking up and the money that you could have been earning in that time if you weren't otherwise dedicating it to this. Um, Wow. I mean, this is just, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but it's true. You know, of course, being from the UK and living in the UK, I would just have no idea about all of this and I wonder um do you think the reason so many of these employers don't want to support with the visa and all all the costs involved do you think it's because of kind of tight budgets from the top and people being too scared to stand up to the boss about money or do you think it's a complete lack of understanding particularly because you're in tech and I feel that tech is an industry where it's absolutely crucial that we have people from all different backgrounds so in my head surely an employer would see that it's worth a pre-paying paying a premium to have somebody come from the other side of the world with completely different experiences ideas to bring to that company 
but maybe the employers just do not understand that do you think it's either of those something else just to counter that though before you answer I do actually think that this is a really interesting one because from the other side I've been on the side of companies hiring before and when you hire somebody you have absolutely no idea how good that person is so actually I do understand to a degree why employers sometimes are so reluctant to shell out a lot of costs up front before they even get someone in the door who then actually might not be any good at the job. But it's almost like a gamble sometimes, isn't it? Because if you're really good, then it's a small price to pay. But there's a lot of money that you could spend for somebody to be not very good. Um, But I'd also be interested to know your thoughts generally on that. But also you mentioned that it has become easier since Brexit. And is that because we now have a lack of skilled workers that they are actually making it easier for immigrants who have got those skills to come here? Absolutely. There's so much to unpack there, right, ladies? Sorry, we've thrown a lot at you there. It's it's completely fine. It is just one of those topics that I love, like talking to people about, and you know, whenever I get an opportunity, like educating others about it. Um, so I'll go I'll go with your question first, Ellie. Um, absolutely, I think when I'm in 2018, it was harder because there wasn't this one graduate visa, and there weren't all the changes that they've made since Brexit. And it absolutely goes to that one point of because, and, and this happens everywhere. This happens in every economy, every country. They have peaks and troughs when it, they try to control immigration and the type of immigration that they're getting in. Right. So like, for example, it used to be actually even easier in 2012 Then they shut the borders essentially to certain countries and they kind of try to control that. And I get all of that. Like, absolutely. It's just how policies and governance has to work. Right. Um, so, yeah, we always have to keep an eye on what that trend looks like. And you might have heard of some countries who have actually relaxed their rules. Like, for example, Canada has been relaxing their rules for a very long time, but they're now making them stringent. It, it, I think they just try to control like this exodus and influx of like populations. So completely get that. Like I get every, you know, everything that goes into making these decisions. Um, and then absolutely, you're right again. I think it is an added cost, right? Hiring an immigrant is an added cost. And I fully acknowledge that. So they, I think an employer, especially a recruiter coming from a place where they don't fully understand immigration, has to make that decision with what they see on paper about a person. So a lot of the times when I've been in interviews, I think, and, and some recruiters have been very kind and genuinely telling me that I was amazing. It just so happens that there was another candidate and it was easier. Because hiring me means you also have to wait for about a good two to three months while the visa gets processed. So there's an added cost. There'll be a certain time before everything has to work out and they have to then hire a lawyer. And all of this takes a recruiter's time when the recruiter could be hiring other people, right? So all those dynamics, again, make complete sense and I respect them and you know they need to be uh, worked into this entire mechanism. But there is a way to hire ethically in a way that genuinely meets uh, you know, the needs of the industry. And it goes very well back to your question, Victoria, where absolutely since Brexit, I think uh, there is a skills shortage, right? And then there are types of skill shortages. So there's a huge digital skill shortage at the moment. And then you can kind of see why they sort of change rules to, to make it easier for certain markets, which could have that skill set, right? Um, so that's one reason as to why employers might think about it. And then the one thing that I think is something we um, as people need to realize and work into our own plans is the career stage at which 
being an immigrant has different perks and cons, right? So I can see that shift. I can 100% see that shift as somebody who was a graduate with no experience. People were less likely to take a gamble on me. Keeping in mind that 2018 was genuinely harder. And then I've kind of moved through certain different types of employers, employers who've taken chances on me, employers who've made it very difficult for me, but then finally made my way slowly to a massive company, right? A company uh, that's doing quite well. I think big techs are always easier, right? Because they have the resources. Um, but the biggest shift in all of this was the number of years of experience I personally had. So I am now a more reliable hire, a hire where they can actually take the risk on and know what they're getting in that gamble. Um, so it's been very interesting. You know, um, I am somebody who's very like rational. So I see it both sides and I've kind of, found a way to channelize my emotions in such a way that I could help somebody actually like apply that all this knowledge to their career and, and plan that accordingly. I think I have a lot of friends who, who probably come from all parts of the world, like right from, you know, the um, South Americas to India, Middle East, you know, East Europe. And I always say to them that I highly recommend instead of investing in a master's, an MBA, an education as a way to get into the UK, I highly recommend that they get experience because as soon as you kind of cross that three-year mark, you become a lot more like reliable as a hire and, and companies, even if you're completely abroad, if you're not in the country at the moment, are more willing to take that gamble on you. I understand exactly what you're saying. And anyone who's been in the working world, you know, throughout their 20s, going from being a graduate to having some experience can relate to that journey in some way or another. You know, once you have a track record, some things to show and demonstrate that you, you know, are credible and, you know, you you can evidence the work you've done and the skills you've gained. But it's so difficult. It's kind of like a chicken and egg problem because like you say, employers want to hire experienced people, but in order to have the experience, you need someone to employ you. So it's really difficult. And for anybody who's on any sort of similar journey to you, are there any sort of, do you have any advice? Are there any specific types of companies or types of industries? I know you said there's a huge um, shortage in digital skills. Would you encourage um, kind of younger people trying to, to get that experience to go for a digital career? Digital careers are very interesting because they you can't, you can't say anymore that it's like a tech industry, right? Tech is an overarching, let's call it an element that is now infiltrating every industry out there. So it's very easy within your industry to kind of make that digital switch, right? My, my advice has always been being very intentional with your choices. I've kind of developed like a little calculation that I do, like a quick return on investment. And that's my biggest advice, especially if you are somebody who's international in the UK. If you choose to go get more education, right? You have to be very intentional about which, what kind of um, institution are, are you studying from? What's a track record of that institution? International students have to pay a much higher fees. You know how in the UK we talk a lot about education being nine grand? It's the opposite. Masters cost on an average about 25 grand to 30 grand. That's just the reality of it, right? So you're taking a much bigger gamble 
when you're an international student who moves you're like we're not even talking about cost of living in in the uk right and and the immigration costs so it it really comes down to being intentional with your choices you can make some fantastic choices there's no doubt about it and very quickly you can kind of look at your choice and sort of say hey this is a more secure investment and this isn't so if somebody was going to come here in my case it really worked out because it was 100 scholarship the return on investment was very very high give regardless of everything that i've gone through but i can i can look at myself now and be like yes you know my salary is higher than my dad's ever been on and he's like a very successful corporate leader as well so it's it's all of these things that you genuinely need to sit down and think about you can't be emotional about it being you know like a study abroad because there's a huge price tag with it one of the biggest things i faced was going into a creative industry the return on investment was unfortunately and like we know how horrible it is for creative careers around the world especially after the pandemic but going into a creative career i saw i think i was like you know if you were to put it on a scale if there were 100 people and they were all my friends i was the only person who stayed back everybody had to go back if they were from the usa to east of europe anywhere unfortunately right so it's it's that discussion right so would you rather be a a fresh graduate um let's say in india uh, because you know it's closest to me uh, and my understanding and then would you rather not like work in india for a few years do some actual real good work and then maybe come for your masters right it, it's just a decision it's a truth you kind of have to take all the factors that you have been given and make very intentional choices so absolutely corporate speak here but look at the return on investment on any decision that you make because money is like it's not the biggest factor but it's a great telltale sign for are you making the right decision for yourself before we let you go i'd really just love to ask what is next for you what are your goals um you know you've achieved so much in the time that you have been working here so far but you mentioned you've got lots of ideas so yeah what does the future look like for you such a great question i make i make plans all the time i have a one year plan a five year plan a 10 year plan there they're so ambitious you know i genuinely set really big goals for me and then i love like just hacking away at it um what do i want next i um i'm loving being in technology and i think i've been a project manager in sort of the banking fintech industry and now i obviously work in, in within at deliveroo but within grocery tech and i kind of want to make that switch to product management now and i think that's going to be a fantastic next step for me and i think that step will sort of take me to starting my own company i want to have like my own media tech firm someday so very excited for that um one of the best things about my career i've sometimes i look at it and i realize i've only been working for 4 years even though it feels like forever but in that 4 year my biggest achievement has been unlocking lots of little different career paths for me and i've always thought of these career paths as they need to be kind of moving simultaneously if i choose to take a career break if i want to do like you know leave everything and just like do like travel around the world for a bit um so of those career paths um i would love to sit on a footsie 100 board just like manifesting that where i can um <laughs> i recently um got like an appointment as a trustee at a let's call it like the corporate social side of a massive company 
uh, and it's an independent charity, but it is like funded by this big company. So I think I'm taking the right steps. So that's one. Uh, the next one would be um, I'm kind of exploring a career in venture capital at the moment and angel investing. I'm taking big steps towards it. So I'd love to be an angel investor in the next year. Um, and then the third thing would be, um, and this one's quite crazy, but I do want to be like a content creator and like start a business very soon, especially because I become like, I, I, you know, I will get like this visa to like live and have my own business in the country. So I have to do something for that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm starting to look at uh, creating a consultancy and a coaching um, arm, talking about the future of work, social mobility and Gen Z careers. So I'm going to focus a lot on that and um, content creation. I feel like I do a little bit of it, but I want to be like more serious about it and, you know, and treat it as a business. And uh, yeah, very well-rounded answer, but I just want to do everything. And I really want to strike that balance. Well, I mean, I'm not sure how much balance you're going to get, but you seem to have phenomenal skills to fit so much into such a small period of time. You said you've been working for four years. I really wanted to ask so you can tell all our listeners, please, can you tell everybody how old you are? <laughs> can I be honest with you, Victoria? I've learned to kind of not tell people my age. So when I was 21, it's completely fine. I, I will tell all my listeners here today. Uh, I am 25. But one thing that happened to me was when I was 21, I became a project manager and I was working in banks and sure. a lot of people, and I was very excited about it. I always say, oh, people would say, how old are you? And I'm like, guess, just guess how old I am. And be like, oh, I'm 21. And I realized when I'm doing that, people were actually using that against me and they'd be like, I don't want to be managed by you. You know, I don't want to take direction from you. And I've kind of learned now to be like, use my age as, I don't want you to know, like I hide my cards. Um, but if you did ask me, I will tell you. Like, <laughs> no, no, honestly, I find that really interesting because I, I, have a, I have a similar sort of difficult thing around my age. I... I'm a financial advisor and that's typically, you know, you think straight away of like a 60 year old man, mm -hmm. but I actually think, um, and I think it probably changes throughout your career, but I have learned to be actually really proud of it. And I also think, thankfully, I think it is difficult in the corporate world, especially where there's kind of ego involved, but I actually think um, there's now almost a respect for younger generations I actually think older people are realizing that younger people have skills and knowledge that they actually don't so I think it can be um an advantage in some ways but that's really interesting point um we cannot wait to follow your journey and I'm sure everyone who has listened will want to follow you as well where can everybody find you um, you can find me as Ritulcha Rao on almost every platform because that's just who I am. But I think I'm super active on LinkedIn. So yeah, you can look me up on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been so, so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an amazing conversation.